The following message was given by Tim Abbott on Sunday, June 23rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good morning, my name is Tim. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. We are in week three of our Summer Psalm series. Um, I want to go ahead and, and set some ex- expectations uh, for you up front. I want to uh, go ahead and disappoint you now so that you're not too disappointed later. Um, how many of you have seen the movie uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King? Okay, good Christian group, good. Um, uh, absolutely one of my favorite movies ever. I have one very minor complaint, and it was really just the first time I watched it that it was a complaint. Um, but my minor complaint is the way the end or ends of the movie are shot. It's a near perfect story, an incredible movie, but, but the movie basically has four endings, and each time it fades to black and then comes back. And so the first time we watched it, I was like, man, they're just jumping on the bed, Frodo and his friends, this is great, let's head out. And then all of a sudden it just comes, comes back, and there's, there's Aragorn getting crowned. I'm like, oh man, that was a good ending too. All right, all right, let's head, let's head, head back. And then we come in again, and there's Frodo on a boat, and he's headed off. I'm like, okay, that was, that was okay. And uh, then we finally get to the ending. Um, so I just want you to know that uh, I'm kind of going to do that to you today. Um, we are going to pause and reflect three times throughout this sermon uh, because, because David uses the word selah three times in this psalm, Psalm 32. And we don't know exactly the meaning of, of selah, but the, the leading thought is that it means to pause or to consider. And, and so we will do that. Now, um, I think it'll be helpful because it is difficult oftentimes to remember uh, the beginning or middle of a sermon and actually think of anything good that you remember from that. Uh, so we're all going to take at least one minute to consider each part of, of, of this psalm. Uh, but it is going to be disappointing because when we hit that first pause in about 15 minutes, some of you, even though I just explained it, some of you are going to be like, wow, great sermon, Tim. That was awesome. Short to the point. That's my kind of sermon. So I'm telling you now, that's not the end of the sermon. Um, so with that said, stand with me uh, just one more time as, as we read together from Psalm uh, chapter 32. Go ahead and stand, and I will read, and you just follow along. This is Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for what you put 
David through and, and gave to him and, and showed him so that we could now see the, the, the blessedness of forgiveness. Um, Father, thank you for what you do to, to uh, send your son into this world so that we can know what happiness is, so that we can know what forgiveness is. I pray that you would remind us of that this morning, you would teach us that this morning, that we would walk in light of it. Father, we thank you for it all and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you may be seated. The Scottish preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said, the greatest need of the hour is a revived, happy, joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, the poor recommendation of the Christian faith. And there can be little doubt that the exuberant joy of the early church was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. The end result today, where we are going, is God-given Christ-exalting happiness, elation, pure childlike rejoicing that can only be found in Jesus. Psalm 32 is often referred to as a psalm of repentance, but it is also a psalm of thanksgiving and happiness for, for, for all of God's forgiveness. David in this psalm teaches us what it means to truly be happy. He answers for us three questions. What is happiness? How do we get it? And how do we stay happy? Happiness defines this psalm from beginning to end. The first word in this psalm, the word is Asher. Asher means happy. Blessed or happy is he. Happy is the man. Happiness has, has gotten a bad rap, I believe, by pastors and in churches in recent years. I have heard and read many sermons that proclaim that happiness is just a weak, cheap imitation of joy. Joy, that is a Christian word. The happiness is just something else. I've been in many conversations. Maybe you've said some version of this. I know I have uh, this statement that, that God doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to have joy. I've heard pastors that I respect say happiness is fragile and cheap. Joy is deep-rooted and settled. Happiness is an emotion and joy is something. That is a fruit of the Spirit. One author put it this way. Happiness is driven by our circumstances. Joy is something you can experience regardless of your circumstances. Happiness is a bubbly and superficial and circumstantial feeling that comes and goes. Joy, though, is a deep-seated affection that endures. It sounds pretty compelling and pretty spot on. So you would think that there has to be some verse in the Bible that backs up that idea. Some verse that says, quit being so happy. You wretched happy people repent and find joy. You can try to find it. It's, it's not there. At least I don't think it's there. Now, what we find again and again are verses like Psalm 92. You, O Lord, have made me happy by your work. I will sing for joy because of what you have done. Isaiah 35, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain happiness and joy. The pastor, John Piper, is on my side in this argument, and so everyone else loses the argument. Uh, he said it this way, the Bible is indiscriminate in its pleasure language. If you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because, because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy. It is lavish in all of them and none of them is chosen above the other. The question then that, that remains that many of us will ask rightly is, is then what really is happiness? There's a lot of definitions. There's a lot of looks for what happiness is. So what does it look like? What does it mean to be happy? 
We recently uh, took our kids to Disney World, the happiest place on earth. And uh, several times a day in one of the parks, there is a march of stormtroopers from Star Wars right in the middle of the park. And Abraham, our, our six-year-old, is a Star Wars fan and especially loves bad guys right now. And so he really loves stormtroopers. So as several hundred people gather around to watch this, this march, you can see my six-year-old son leaning out as far as he possibly could, nervous as can be, but so excited and so happy. And he just looks down and then he looks back at us and he says, Mom, Dad, there's real stormtroopers right there. And, and we look at him and, and we, we calmly say, oh man, that's, that's great and, and we're mature and, and we think, man, you know, that's, it brings him such happiness. I mean, we can never bring, get that much happiness out of something like that. But in reality, all I wanted to do was lean out and look down there and look back at Jen and say, Jen, there are real stormtroopers right there. What, what he experienced in that moment, what he experienced freely and I experienced all bottled up, uh, it's... It's not exactly what the psalmist is talking about here, but it is very genuine, and it certainly points to what true happiness can be. Fortunately, the Bible is full of pictures of happy people. The Bible paints a compelling picture of happiness. Christ specifically in his parable shows us what this happiness really is. Describing his kingdom, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Christ is speaking, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We often read the Bible without any emotion. We read the Bible like a textbook, not as compelling stories that rouse our emotion. Christ is telling a parable, a story that most everyone there could imagine what it would be like if this happened to them. But yet too often we, we, we read this and just think of a man kind of nonchalantly going along and, and looking down and seeing a billion dollars and thinking, ah, that'll be helpful. Um, and, then, and then going and selling all that he has in some casual way. That's probably not the picture that most people had in mind when they heard this story. Um, if you've seen the movie Elf, that moment where Buddy starts working at the store and the department manager that comes in and announces that Santa is going to be there tomorrow and Buddy immediately screams out, Santa! Ah! I know him. Uh, Will Ferrell did that a little better. Uh, but, but that has to be close to what that man who found the treasure was feeling in that moment. The psalmist in Psalm 27, 7 wrote this, my heart leaps for joy. His heart had to be leaping for joy. He probably would have raised suspicion from people in town that knew him as he goes around with a huge smile on his face, skipping around town, selling everything that he has. Somebody had to wonder what's going on with him. That is how Christ chose to illustrate what it was like to become part of the kingdom of heaven. In Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son is found, and it not only teaches us about our happiness, but the happiness of God the Father. The prodigal son has left his home and went and lived however he wanted to, and it cost him everything, and he ends up eating with pigs. And then he decides that he has to go back home. He has no other options. And he says, starting in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And then in verse 32, the father says to his other son, it was right to celebrate and be happy for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The language is so beautiful. He goes and he embraces him. He runs to him. He kisses him. He immediately starts doing everything he can to throw a huge celebration so that they can throw a party together. It says he was right for them to be happy. It was right for the son to be happy. It was right for the father to be happy. It was right to rejoice and to celebrate. And before we get too far, I want you to know that this is not a call for you to act happy. It would be easy to hear what I'm saying and feel like you need to act like you're happy, whether you are or not. I certainly don't want you to feel compelled to act like something you're not. And I'm not trying to tell you exactly how to express happiness. Different people certainly express their joy in different ways. I know for some of you, a slow nod and a slight smile means there's a party going on up in there. So we certainly don't want to dictate what happiness looks like. And this isn't meant to disregard your pain or your grieving. If you're going through something that has been heavy on your heart for a long time, it is right for you to grieve. And as a church, we should grieve with you. But in Christ, in Christ alone, we are able to do things that apart from him would be impossible. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says this short little statement, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I hope you know it is right to mourn and grieve. Yet Paul here doesn't say we are sorrowful Yet we always remember that we have an underlying joy that sustains us. He says we are sorrowful, yet because of Christ, we are always rejoicing. What David is talking about here in Psalm 32 and what Paul was talking about in his letter to the Corinthians is not something we can just make happen on our own. This happiness is not something we can just make happen on our own. This is something that apart from Christ simply isn't possible. This is a call to know that there is no lasting happiness apart from God. Happiness is a right response to what God has done for us in Christ. Happiness is a right response for a sinner that has been forgiven. We aren't wrong by seeking happiness or by being happy. We just often don't know what true happiness is because we are looking for it in the wrong ways and in the wrong places. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, put it this way. Don't let your happiness depend on something that you may lose. Happiness, true happiness, is something that must be able to be had no matter the situation and cannot be taken away. Whether you are poor or sick or grieving, there is still a happiness that is very unique to the forgiving Christian. David here in Psalm 32 is reflecting back on his sin, a sin that he did not want to confess. But now he is proclaiming the happiness of confessed sin and the forgiveness of God. David, several times through this psalm, uses three different ways to explain something. 
to explain our sin, our confession, and our forgiveness. I think he does that because we so easily want to do one angle of, of confession, one angle of being happy, one angle of seeing our sin, and we don't see the complete picture. So he paints a good, complete picture for us. David tells us here in Psalm 32, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The word forgiven here literally means lifted up and carried away. That is what God has done with our sin. He has lifted it up and carried it away. Isaiah 53 then says that the Lord has laid on Christ, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. God has lifted our sins off of us and he has laid that crushing weight onto Jesus. So you no longer have to feel the weight of your sin. You no longer have to feel the weight of your guilt. You no longer have to feel the weight of coming judgment. That is happiness. David again tells us, happy is the one whose sin is covered. We desperately try to cover up our own sin. We try to hide them away from others and from God. When I was a child, I remember a number of times my parents would tell me to cl clean my room, to pick up toys and clothes, and I would go and walk out about two minutes later and say I was finished. My parents would say, are you sure? And I would say confidently, yep, go check it out. And they would go and see in the middle of the room a mound of something covered up by a blanket. Now this is a tried and true uh, trick by six-year-olds. So six-year-olds, if you haven't tried it, go ahead. Um, I remember clearly thinking there is no possible way that they're going to know that, that I didn't actually clean the room. I know there's no possible way they're going to see it. Even with the clothes seeping out underneath the blanket, there's no possible way. We make half-hearted attempts to cover our sin. We throw a blanket on the mountain of our sin. Our sin isn't a small thing. It is a big thing. And we throw a blanket on top of it and believe that God won't see it. God sees all of our sins. He knows all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our intentions. And the only way we can truly be forgiven is if he does not see them. And we cannot do that. We cannot make that possible. And so he makes a way. He sends his son to atone to cover our sin with his blood. God makes a way so that our sin will never be seen and used against us. God takes it and puts it on his son and we look like we are sinless. We look like we were without sin. We look like we are righteous. And Christ bears the punishment and the scars of our sin. When God covers it, it takes it completely away and we look like we are perfect sons and daughters of God. We are forgiven. Our son is covered. And then thirdly, David says, happy is the one against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. Our happiness is found in that, in that something you might have heard before, but that we are not being charged with our iniquity. We go into a courtroom and there are 10,000 accusations against us. There are 10,000 charges against us. And, and I know and everyone else knows that there is complete and utter proof that I'm guilty. The only right thing to do is to come down with the harshest judgment possible. And we walk into that courtroom and we are told there are no charges against us and we are free to go. That is happiness. That person will never stop talking about what happened that day. That person will be happy forever and ever. And yet too often, with forgiveness extended to us, with forgiveness there waiting for us, we still keep silent. 
when abundant, everlasting happiness is waiting for us, we still refuse to do the one thing that can bring us that happiness, to confess. We refuse to acknowledge our sin. We are afraid of what our sin, what acknowledging our sin will cost us. We are afraid of how people will see us. We have all built for ourselves a persona, a way that we want to be seen by others, a way that we want others to see us. And it is very likely that if someone truly knew our sin, truly knew our deepest thoughts, our most sinful thoughts, that they would never see us that way again. We don't primarily want to be seen as broken people in need of forgiveness. We don't primarily want to be seen as broken people who need a savior, as people who need Jesus. David describes in verses three and four what he felt before he confessed, when he was still trying to act like his sin wasn't a big deal, didn't need to be confessed. He says that all of his strength was taken from him. There was groaning all day long, bones wasting away, feeling the hand of God heavy upon him. When we refuse to confess and repent of our sin, we choose the path of heaviness when God extends to us the path of happiness. Our own soul is against us. It weighs on our hearts and minds and God weighs heavy on us so that we have no strength, no joy. We feel the weight of our sin all day and all night. This is the first time he says Selah. So we are going to pause here. Again, this is not the end of the sermon. Uh, but we are gonna pause here to consider the power and happiness found in God's forgiveness. There will be a couple of questions on the screen for you to consider, but take a minute and reflect on the forgiveness of God. Remember a time when God's forgiveness brought you true happiness and reflect on your need to seek that forgiveness now. chapter 32 says this I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin Selah. my wife and I are celebrating our 19th anniversary tomorrow 
Um, God has been very gracious, and my wife has been very gracious uh, to stay married that long. Uh, early on in our marriage, I, I had my own business, and uh, to be honest, it wasn't doing very well uh, in the beginning. And before that, I had had a series of failures, um, uh, and, and so I was very determined that this business was not going to fail. I was determined that I, I wouldn't fail at anything else. And so, uh, as it wasn't doing very, very well, um, and without talking to my wife, telling her about it, and letting her know, I started to borrow money to support the business. Uh, I became more and more determined to make it happen on my own, and we grew deeper and deeper in debt, even though she didn't know it. I took out credit cards in her name and my name, and to be honest, it just kept getting worse. The worse it got, the more I shut off to her. I stayed up more nights worrying about the money, worrying about her finding out. I was lying to others to try to convince them that the business was going great because I wanted to be seen as successful. And I was dealing with the guilt of not just what I had done, but the fact that I continued to lie to her and others about it. So I would get short and angry with Jen when she would talk to me about our finances or ask questions. And I was getting angry for not just turning the, for, for, I was getting angry at God for not just turning the business around and making it successful so that I could get out of this mess without having to admit that I had failed, without having to confess my sin, without having to seek forgiveness. I had to work harder and harder to hide the sin, and the harder I worked, the heavier it weighed on my mind, my heart, and my relationships. I convinced myself, and we all too often convince ourselves that our best path, our happiest path, is sin, to continue in sin and to cover that sin up. We convince ourselves that nothing could be worse than having to stop sinning and have that sin out in the open. I was convinced that as miserable as I was, as much sleep as I was losing, as much fear that I had that someone would find out, that my wife would find out, that the simple act of confession was much worse than the fight I was in to keep it hidden. That picture that David paints was eerily accurate, groaning all day long. I felt like there was a weight weighing me down. It honestly felt like the weight of my sin was so heavy it could just carry me down to the depths of hell. Yet when I was finally confronted about my sin and confessed it all, I found forgiveness was there waiting for me. There was a lot of work to be done to build trust, but I found that forgiveness was there in my wife and forgiveness was there from God. The recipe to happiness is fairly simple. Confess our sin and the Lord will forgive immediately and completely. David here again uses three different phrases in verse 5 so that it is clear what we mean when we talk about confession. So that we don't just take one aspect of it and say, I did that, so I'm good. But it's clear what it actually means to confess. He says, I acknowledged, I did not conceal or hide, and I will confess. First he says he acknowledged his sin. He stopped trying to pretend that it wasn't actually sin, that it wasn't actually a big deal. The word sin here means that we miss the mark. We often try to sugarcoat what we did to make it seem like it wasn't that bad, to make us seem like we are better than, than, than we really are. When we acknowledge sin, then we are calling sin what God calls it. We agree with God that it is in fact sin. Our confession often comes with a lot of caveats. I just got caught up. I didn't mean to hurt anyone. I had good intentions. 
I'm just struggling a lot. We try to downplay our sin to God, and we try to downplay our sin to others. David says here, no more caveats, no more downplaying. Acknowledge it, call it what it is. And then David says, I did not conceal or hide my iniquity. The word iniquity means a crooked or vile act. Now, uh, to be honest, this is where many of us as Christians fall short. We admit that we're sinners, but not, not the really bad kind of sinners. While we would never say it this way, many of us believe, yes, I've sinned, but in the cleanest, nicest way possible. We've fallen short of the glory of God, but just by a little bit. We're not guilty of the crooked, vile acts that some really bad sinners are. We are not disgusted by our sin. And when you are not disgusted by your sin, when you feel like your sin is not that bad, then you are in danger of what David is talking about in verse 2, when he says that the happy, forgiven man, in that man there is no deceit. We are in danger of lying to ourselves, others, and God about our sin when we convince ourselves that our sin is not that bad. Your sin, my sin, sent Jesus to the cross, and he had to die because of your sin. Your sin really is that bad. And when you realize it's that bad, when you realize it's crooked and vile, it will be natural to want to keep it hidden. It will be natural for you to not want anyone to see you that way. And so David says, I'm not going to conceal it. I'm not hiding my iniquity. That means before God and before others. We don't have to try and hide it before God because God didn't put any limitations on how despicable or vile the sin was that would be forgiven. God didn't say there was any limitations on how crooked or vile it could be and we could still be forgiven. We know this because David is the one talking about forgiveness. David here says, I will not conceal my sin. And to be honest, David's sin has become one of the most well-known sins in all the world. David's, David's sin has been put on display for all of history. So when he says, I will not conceal my sin, I'm not sure he knows how far it's going to go. If there were a museum of sin, which my wife told me after reading this is a horrible idea for a museum, <laughs> but if, if there was a museum of sin, then David would have a wing devoted to his sin. Adultery, murder, he would have one of those huge VMFA banners across town waving around committed to his sin. The person who says they will not hide their iniquity means they don't have to hide their sin because it is forgiven. And they don't have to worry about how they are seen in the eyes of other people because they know and trust that the eternal ruler and judge of the universe looks at them and sees them as forgiven. He sees them as righteous. He sees them as his son or daughter. The most high king sees them as his children. You don't have to worry about how other people see you. You can confess freely. And then he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. This is where we admit that we willfully rebelled against what God wanted. We were not always on the same page God and us, we willfully rebelled against what he wanted. We finally get to the point that no matter what it costs me, no matter what I'm afraid I will lose, I will confess. We often go to God and we want him to make us happy while we still grasp onto our sin. Even though God cares so much more about our happiness, knows how we can actually be happy and offers us that happy beyond anything we could ask or think, we don't actually want 
what God is offering. I got dressed this past Friday morning, and uh, in general, I I have about five outfits that I just circulate in. So um, this morning, I did something a little bit different. I had a shirt that I don't usually wear, and and in complete honesty, I was feeling pretty good about myself. and, and so I walked out and I asked my, my wife uh, what she thought. And she said, kind of nonchalantly, you look great. And then she took a longer look at me and she said, it's a lot of brown. And I can tell by the way she said it that she didn't mean like a lot of brown in a good way. Um, she actually said, you look like you're going on a safari. <laughs> I, I realized in that moment, I didn't actually want to know what she thought. Um, I didn't actually want to know her opinion. I just wanted her to tell me that I looked awesome, whether she thought that or not. Most of the time, we don't actually want to hear what God has to say about our sin. We don't want him to tell us that what we're doing is sin and we need to stop. I didn't want God to touch that sin. I was afraid of who I would be without it. I was afraid of who I would be if everyone found out. I wanted him to make my sin okay. I wanted happiness, and I wanted it my way. I wanted to stay in my rebellion, and I wanted God to bless that. That isn't how this works. You can't hang on to sin with one hand and Jesus with the other. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 tells us, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You can stop holding on to Jesus with one hand, thanking Jesus for all he's done, but grasping onto sin with all of our might. We can leave it behind. We can confess it. This is the second selah. So we're going to take a minute to consider our own sin. What sin do you need to confess? Is there sin that you have tried to hide? Is there sin that you have minimized or not acknowledged? Take time to consider it now and know that if you confess it, then God is faithful to forgive. Take a moment. verses 6 and 7 says this. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Verses 1 through 5 have made a compelling case that happiness is to be had 
is, is, belongs to those that are forgiven by God. Verses 6 and 7 show us how God is completely committed to guarded, guarding and keeping our happiness. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. In other words, do this quickly. Forgiveness is there waiting for you. Forgiveness is there. Happiness is there. Quickly pray to God. Don't think about it. Don't, don't, don't consider it for too long, but run to God and confess your sins. Happiness is yours, so go quickly to him. Then he builds our confidence. David, again, uses three ways of describing our security. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. There is now nothing that can harm you. Nothing that can take that forgiveness away from you. Nothing that can take that happiness away from you. The one that has, has, has been forgiven is happy not only because God doesn't charge him with his sin, but he is also happy because of what God does to protect him, preserve him, and surround him with joyful songs of deliverance. God is happy to be doing this on your behalf. God shows that he is now fully committed to preserving you. God is fully on your side. There are so many things in life that threaten to steal our joy, to steal our happiness. Sometimes there are things that happen that make it seem like we will never be happy again. That sadness or anxiety will consume us. It will be the thing that identifies us for the rest of our life. Mark chapter 4, Christ tells another parable, this time of the sowers. And that parable describes how different people respond to God's word. And in that parable, Christ says this, that some hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word out and it proves unfruitful. There are going to be many things in life that will threaten your happiness in God. There will be many things in life that, that threaten your happiness so that you think, I don't know if this forgiveness is really good enough to make me happy. I don't know if this is really enough to, to sustain my happiness. I'm not sure it's, it's really all that I wanted. There will be things that threaten how good this actually is. There are going to be many things that happen that can make you lose confidence in who God is and what he has done for us. David here paints a picture that the people at the time would have understood as potentially devastating to their lives. They knew stories about floods. They knew stories of complete devastation. And he says, even in the rush of great floodwaters coming, that meant that quickly and unexpectedly, a flood could come in and it would be likely that homes would be washed away, food, crops, livestock would be washed away, possibly even our lives or our neighbor's lives or our children's lives could be washed away. Yet even with what looks like coming devastation, David reminds us there is only one safe place in the world. God is our hiding place. God protects us. God joyfully surrounds us and delivers us. So we don't have to let the cares of the world or desires for other things come in and steal our happiness, steal away the joy that is found in God's forgiveness. We can have joy in the midst of facing those things. Romans chapter 8 that we studied a few weeks ago reminds us that through tribu tribulation, persecution, famine, danger, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And it is in Christ that we find our happiness. It is in Christ alone that we can truly find our happiness. And that is secure and he has preserved that. 
We can, that can never be taken away from you. Nothing can come and take that away from you. So whatever you're looking at it, you know, no matter what, my happiness is secure. My forgiveness is secure. I will be with God forever. That is, is how we securely believe that God is for us. This is the last time he says Selah, and so we will take one last time to pause before we wrap up. Take time to remember and thank God during this time for how he has preserved you, how he has protected you, Thank him for all that he has done in, in, in Christ, all that he has done in sending his son into this world so that you can have joy, so that you can know happiness. Psalm 32, verses 8 through 11. And now switch from David to God speaking to us. And God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God now tells us that he is going to instruct us and tell us where to go. He, he reminds us, don't, don't, don't do like the horse or the mule. Don't make me force you to come to the wedding feast. Don't make me force you to come and, and partake of the greatest happiness that is available. Come freely, come easily, know that it is waiting for you. And now God himself tells us, commands us to be happy. He calls us to happiness with, again, three expressions of pure joy. Be glad in the Lord, rejoice, and shout for joy. He gives us a complete expression of what it means to truly be happy the way God intends us to be happy. Does he care about your joy? Does God care about your joy? Yes. Does God want you to be happy? Yes. Does God want you to celebrate and rejoice? Yes. This is an everlasting, ever-increasing happiness. Too often, we remember how happy we were when we first came to Jesus. But as time goes on, that, that wanes and it loses something. But truthfully, this is an ever-increasing happiness as we remember and reflect on all that God has done in forgiving us and all that God has done in sending us Christ. It grows and grows until we reach 
perfect joy in being united together with Christ. Most of the time, many of us ask, what can I, what can I do so that I can be happy? It's a common question, um, whether you're a Christian or not. If you are a Christian, you probably have a slightly different version where you look at God and ask him, how are you going to make me happy? What are you going to do, God, to make me happy? Or maybe you just tell him what he needs to do to make you happy. The truth is, and I, I, this is so wonderful, that God cares so deeply for your happiness that he sent his own son into this world to suffer and die. He cares more about your joy than you ever could. So when we go to him and tell him how he can make, him, uh, make us happy, when he offers eternal, ever-increasing happiness, God knows so much more than, than, than we do. He wants us to have the only true, lasting happiness there is. And so in verse 10, he tells David, he tells us, for the one who trusts in the Lord, he will have faithful love surrounding him. Literally, a love that cannot fail will encompass you. He is the father in the prodigal son story, running out to you, giving you the best clothes, dressing you in righteousness, throwing the biggest and best feast and celebrating with joyful shouts of deliverance. God is happy to do this. But he is even greater than the father in the story because he was the one who came and rescued us. We all tried to make ourselves happy and we ended up eating with the pigs, but God came and rescued us, picked us up out of there, and then throws the celebration to welcome us home. And somehow this forgiveness loses its luster in many of our lives and we find ourselves doing everything that we can, working desperately at our jobs, going from relationship to relationship, spending all the money that we can, all looking for someone or something to make us happy. Verse 10 tells us, many pains come to the wicked. Most of us know that our sin hurts. It hurts us, it hurts others, it separates us and weighs heavy on our souls. Yet we will cling to that sin. We will cling to our sin because it feels like it gives us a shot at happiness. We will cling to our sin because maybe it will provide some momentary happiness. We will cling to our sin as if it can truly make us happy. And that is a lie. It cannot make you happy. The Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, in the 19th century, he only lived to be 29 years old. But before he died of illness, he said this, God never tasted one of the pleasures of sin. Christ has a body such as I have, yet he never tasted one of the pleasures of sin. Yet their happiness is complete. The redeemed through all eternity will never taste one of the pleasures of sin, yet their happiness is complete. The devil strives night and day to make me forget this. He says to us, why should you not enjoy these pleasures as much as anyone else? It was a lie in the very beginning. It is a lie still today. It is a lie that we convince ourselves. We look around and we see others. We see others' happiness and we convince ourselves. Why should we not enjoy these things as much as anyone else? This is a lie. True happiness is to go and sin no more. For those who say, I, 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 I don't really do the happy thing. You don't know what I've been through. I hear you. I understand. I encourage you to remember, though. As a Christian, we are always setting our eyes on Christ, remembering what he's done for us. Remember how great a salvation you have. And when you remember, rejoice, whatever that looks like. Rejoice, shout for joy, and be happy. 
to those who aren't Christians, stop looking for happiness in yourself. Stop looking for everyone around you to make you happy. Stop looking at the things of this world to bring you that consistent, lasting, unshakable joy that you're so desperate to, to get. And turn to Christ, turn from your sin, confess your sin, and find the joy and happiness of being forgiven. The happiness of knowing that your sin has been taken far away from you and can be never brought back. And the happiness in knowing that nothing can take God's forgiveness and salvation away from you. To those who are Christians, stop looking for happiness in yourself. Stop dictating to God what it will take to make you happy and remember and treasure that you are forgiven. Confess your sins. Don't conceal or hide, but live like one who has been forgiven. There is no greater happiness than to have all your sins forgiven and to stand guilty of nothing in the presence of an almighty God. There is no greater happiness than to have all your sins forgiven and to stand guilty of nothing in the presence of an almighty God. And that is only possible because of Christ. So rejoice and live like one who is happy. Give generously, serve cheerfully, love sacrificially. We can do these things because God in Christ has taken us from death to life, from darkness to, to, to light, and in Christ is lasting happiness. That is how we are happy. We're gonna take a couple of minutes to reflect and then for those who have trusted in Christ, for forgiveness, we will take communion together. You will hear the words, the body of Christ offered for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And as you take communion, you can rejoice knowing that God has taken your sin as far away as the east is from the west. You can be glad that God has forgiven you. You can shout for joy because Christ gave his body and shed his blood so that we can have life. Jesus has taken the crushing weight of sin so that we can have joy everlasting. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you that you did this joyfully. Thank you that he did this for the joy that was set before him. Thank you that we can be happy in you. We can know what it truly is to be forgiven, to have that weight lifted off of us. Thank you that your son took that weight for us. Father, remind us of that today. Make us walk in light of it. Make us walk as those who are forgiven, rejoicing and shouting and, and living in, in light of your love. Father, we, we love you for it and we thank you for it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Tim Abbott, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.